Uh, This Tuesday, we are together again for our annual Christmas Eve service. The service will be at 6 p.m. at Crestwick Baptist Church. We'd love to see as many of you as possible with your friends, families, neighbors, if you've extended the invitation. We are also going to be doing a dinner together prior. Now, dinner is absolutely covered. Maya has been making soup for the last few days and will probably be making more soup over the next couple. Now, she volunteered to do this, but if you do see her on Tuesday, which I'm sure you will, say thank you. Thank you. Express your love and thanks to her. We're going to be having some soup and some bread. Who doesn't love bread at Christmas time? And so that will be Tuesday. And then following our service, it'll be an hour service. Following our service, we'll be spending some more time together. You're welcome to stay or obviously go for refreshments. At that time, though, we've asked you to bring your favorite Christmas cookies. Maybe it's store-bought. Maybe it's something that you bake every year. But we'd love to enjoy that time together. And then lastly, next Sunday, we are not... Uh, getting together. Um, next Sunday is going to be off, and so we are not meeting, and so we encourage you, maybe that time will be spent with family, friends, or maybe just a quiet night, a quiet morning at home, um, as this is our time of year where we take a little bit of time to rest, to rejuvenate, um, and then uh, we'll get set for the following Sunday. We'll be back together. Good morning, church family. It's so good to be together right before Christmas. Welcome to anybody that is uh, new and maybe you're visiting uh, family. We are going to open the scriptures and read Luke 2, 8 through 14, and I'm going to invite our Frontlines team to come up. They have Bibles, and if you forgot your Bible or you don't have a Bible, you can just shoot your hand up and they would be glad to give you one. If you don't have one at home, would you just keep that as our gift to you? Again, that's Luke 2, 8 through 14, and if you're following in the Bible that the front lines is bringing along, it's page 857. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. We're almost there. Uh, I want us to just jump right in here and talk about these shepherds here for a minute. Uh, If you're not uh, familiar with the birth story of Jesus, or maybe you've heard it in different scattered parts over the course of your life, just to place you where this is, Luke has just talked to us. Luke is the writer of this gospel that Sam read to us from. He's just told us about the actual birth of Jesus in a stable. There's no room for them in the city of Bethlehem in in better accommodations than that. So Jesus has just been born. And then the focus shifts a little bit to this group of shepherds. And I want us to talk about these shepherds for a moment. 
A lot of what I'll say, if you have grown up in church, you will have heard this perhaps many times before, but as much as you're able, I would invite you just, we're not going to spend all of our time, but for the next minute or two, shrug off that familiarity, if you're able to, and revisit some of these details with me for a moment, okay? Those of us who have grown up in church, who've spent some time in the scriptures, our temptation is to look at shepherds very fondly. We, we, maybe you have a shepherd's crook hanging on your Christmas tree, or maybe you've heard the old you know, candy cane thing. This is a shepherd's crook, and if you flip it upside down, it's J for Jesus. Yes, I did grow up in Sunday school in the deep south, uh, the, the southern United States. Uh, that was my experience, but our temptation is to look at the shepherds fondly, and that is not understanding the context very well. Shepherding was not a sought-after profession. One commentator is so was so blunt about it, I read this week, R.H. Stein said, one should not romanticize the occupation of shepherds. In general, shepherds were dishonest and unclean according to the standards of the law. Now, I don't know if Mr. Stein is overstepping there, how he knew that shepherds were dishonest, but uh, that's the claim that he's making, the point being that this, again, was not a sought-after profession in that time. And so these shepherds were likely camped outside of town a little ways, tending their sheep, perhaps more intensively looking after newborn lambs, making sure they survived. Some scholars say that there were some caves nearby that maybe they were camped out in. And then all of a sudden, in verse 9, something happens. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear, it says. And if we think about this, if we stop and pause, that's a pretty natural progression, okay, to, to land them at the point of great fear. Just think with me for a moment. What often happens, again, if you've spent time in the scriptures, when an angel, a heavenly messenger appears, the vast majority of the time, it's terror that people experience. Understandably so, you're going about your business and then this bright warrior type person appears on the scene uh, with a message for you, it would instill some fear. And that's the case throughout much of the library of scripture when a heavenly messenger shows up on the scene. But Luke doesn't stop there. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. So again, if you've spent time in the scriptures, let's think back to some other moments where the glory of the Lord manifested itself. Maybe one that instantly jumps to mind is Mount Sinai with smoke and thunder and God telling Moses, do not let the people even touch the side of the mountain. It's too dangerous. Or think about perhaps the Holy of Holies, that innermost part of the tabernacle where God's glory was most present and the restrictions around coming into that place. One person, one day a year. Otherwise, there was just too much danger. People would be just struck dead. So, this heavenly messenger appearing in the glory of the Lord on the scene as well, it's natural that these poor shepherds are experiencing great fear. Not just fear, Luke tells us, great fear. But that makes sense as we think about the whole of Scripture. And then this angel, this heavenly messenger in verse 10 goes on to say what many angels have to say when they show up on the scene, which is, fear not, don't, don't be afraid, it's okay. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Notice what Luke is showing us there. Great fear is being replaced with great joy. And it's as though the angel knows that the shepherds are likely thinking, 
A, they're terrified, but B, they're likely thinking, okay, um, these seem like they might be, might be angels, heavenly messengers of some sort. We are shepherds. There must have been a wrong turn in there. The, the heavenly Google Maps has, has directed them astray. Um, they don't realize who they're actually here with. You know, awkward moment, like, uh, we're, we're the shepherds. You're, you should be somewhere else. The angel wants to head that off at the pass. The angel says, this good news is for all people. It's not a mistake that I'm here with you in this moment a group of shepherds. And then it goes on in verse 11. For unto you, this is still the angel speaking, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, the longings of your people are coming true. God is fulfilling his promises that you've been waiting for for centuries. It is happening. And then verse 12. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Notice, again, as much as you're able, if you've heard this story a hundred times, shrug off some of that familiarity. Notice the implication here, which is kind of startling. This angel shows up to a group of shepherds. They might be thinking, again, this is terrifying, and this person must be in the wrong place. The angel says, no, this is good news of great joy for all people. We're not in the wrong place. A Savior is born today, and here's how you can find him. In other words, you should go see him. Go see the Savior we're telling you about. Remember, these are shepherds, dishonest, dirty people, and they're being invited in. They're being invited to go see this thing that's happening. And the angel says, here's how you'll find them. Here's how you know you're in the right place. The baby will be wrapped in swaddling cloths, it's, it's, which is like, okay, you know, this is just, you know, a baby being wrapped up warmly. It's like, okay, that's not super helpful. Uh, and he'll be lying in a manger. Pardon? You know, sorry, go over that last detail again. Uh, so the baby will be wrapped up like a baby. Yes, that makes perfect sense. And the baby will be this king, this savior, this Messiah that we've been longing for for centuries will be um, lying where the animals lie. It's like strange, but it's lovely, isn't it? I, I was reflecting on this this week as I was preparing, and it would be as though you had gone to a concert for your favorite band. Every year, if we're friends on Facebook, you may know that every year I survey people at the end of the year about their favorite albums from the year. And each year there's kind of a fan favorite, okay, it seems like, uh, a recurring band. And this year, for at least many of the people in Church of the City, the younger crowd perhaps, but you know, it spans the generations, this band called The Band Camino, okay. Their album was well-liked this year. I don't know what to say about that. But uh, I know for a fact that some uh, folks of Church of the City were at one of their shows recently. But think of any band, any artist that you're a fan of. You've just seen a great show, a great concert. You're just reveling in it. And as people are filtering out, someone looking very official with a clipboard and, you know, one of those little, uh, oh, one of these little things maybe, uh, or something like this comes up and says, hey, uh, before you guys go, the band would love to meet you guys. Uh, you'd be thinking, What? Sure, okay, uh, I'm in for that. Where am I headed? Backstage? Tour bus? What's the deal? And the, the clipboarded person says, actually, they're over at Tim Hortons. Um, they'd love to, they're just around the corner at Timmy's. Uh, you'll know them because, uh, uh, you know, Jason, he likes a double-double, and Rick, he always goes for Boston cream. So that's how you'll know them, okay? They're, they like a corner both, usually. So something that was wonderful all of a sudden got strange and a little bit more wonderful for that, right? Peel off your familiarity with this passage and recognize that that's what's being told to these shepherds in this moment. Hey, there's a Savior being born, a Messiah. You should go and see him, you people on the margins of society. We're inviting you into the center, and here's how you'll know he'll be where the animals are. You'll see a donkey, a couple cows probably nearby. 
It's strange and it's lovely and it's wonderful. And then it's not over. In verse 13, suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest. It's as though a curtain is peeled back and these shepherds get a glimpse of the party that's going on in heaven over what God is doing on earth. And they get to see it firsthand. And so I don't know about you, and this is not easy for us to do with passages like this that perhaps you have, like me, have heard many, many times. But if I am able to just sit in this passage and try and, you know, as best as we can, millennia later, try and experience that with, this, with these shepherds, I get a little bit envious at the intensity of the joy that they must have experienced. Think about all that they're being told in this moment. A Savior has come the one you've been hoping for, and you are being invited in. This Savior, this Messiah, isn't behind red velvet rope. He's in a stable. You should go and see him. They get to be the first ones to the party, both the one that's happening in heaven and the one on earth. And I experience some envy at that, at the just intensity of that experience, hearing that news, being the first ones to hear it. But, as I hope that we will understand a little bit better this morning when we leave, the joy, I think, the joy of all followers of Jesus, of all Christians, should not be that dissimilar from the joy, the great joy experienced by those shepherds that night. It shouldn't be that different. We have good reasons to be joyful people, and I think Scripture shows us ways to cultivate our joy as well. And so I hope we leave understanding that a little bit better in our heads, but also experiencing that a little bit more in our hearts. And so in order to to prepare us for that, as Matt always invites us to do, I would just invite you to take a moment to pause, to listen, to think about how you're feeling, and I'll pray and we'll continue on. Jesus, I believe that your followers, your disciples, your apprentices have good reason to be joyful. I believe that we should be a people marked by joy. And so would our understanding of the joy that you offer us be a little bit clearer this morning? And would our hearts be stirred up in that direction? Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. So, two areas we're going to spend our time this morning. The first is trying to understand why some of the reasons that Christians should be a people of joy. Why should we be marked by joy? Why should followers of Jesus be characterized as joyful people? And then secondly, how might we cultivate that joy in our lives? Fairly simple. So first, why should Christians be a people of joy? Well, first of all, the Christian's joy is very simply a result of delighting in the good things that God has given us. This is one of the uses of joy that we see in Scripture. 
people finding joy in the good things that God has given us, the things he's created, the gifts that he's given to us. Some examples of this in scripture. Proverbs 5, verse 18. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Pretty simple. Husbands being invited to find joy, to rejoice, take joy in their wives. Or Matthew 18, verses 12 to 13. Jesus uh, telling a parable here. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. A shepherd taking great joy in a sheep that's been recovered, that's been found. I'll give you an example of this from my life. One of my hobbies uh, is coffee. Just, you're like making it, drinking it, all of the above. Thinking about it, uh, reading about it, all of it. Uh, I love coffee. And before you go thinking, oh, here we got another coffee snob, I still drink my Tim Hortons, people, okay? Gladly, all right? So, no, not a coffee snob. Uh, but I love uh, making coffee every morning. I love the whole experience, and I'm the person that goes for as much of an experience as I can. Oftentimes, I hand grind the beans, which takes way longer than you expect it to, but I just enjoy it. Uh, you know, I've weighed out the beans, I grind them, then uh, I get my pour over. That's sort of my method of choice for the morning. Usually my, my, my boys are like, Dad, we're hungry, give us breakfast. And I'm like, hang on, boys. Uh, you know, this, this is an experience for me. Uh, and, you know, uh, and then hearing those first drips. Does anybody enjoy the process of making coffee as much as drinking it? Or am I alone in that? A few of us. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about. It's a joyful experience for me. I think coffee is a good gift that God has given us. And yes, you can talk to me later about how I might be addicted or whatever. Uh, but one uh, reason for us to be joyful is that God has made a good world with good gifts that we get to take joy in. Another reason the Christian's joy is a result of the defeat of our enemies. A little bit of a turn around the corner here, right? The Christian's joy is a result of the defeat of our enemies. We see another aspect of, of joy in Scripture, another use of it, and it's that of the joy found in a victory, a victory in battle. Sometimes this word is translated as exultation in, in Scripture. Let me give you an example. 2 Samuel verses, or chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. I actually preached on this passage over the summer. This is David having just, King David having just, well, he's about to become king because he's just learned of the defeat and the deaths of King Saul and his son Jonathan at the hands of the Philistines. And this is what he says. He composes a poem of lament for Saul and for Jonathan. Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Those are two Philistine cities. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. He's saying, it, it pains me that there's this reason for the Philistines to be taking joy in our defeat right now. Now, if you've been paying attention up to this point, and I wouldn't fault you if you're thinking about, you know, your remaining shopping that you have to do this afternoon or something, but if you have been paying attention, maybe you're asking yourself the question, what, what makes these two aspects of joy or two reasons for joy distinctly Christian? 
You know, what, what makes these actually part of the Christian's joy specifically? Because, you know, my neighbor loves making coffee. Uh, they, they do. I hear them grinding their beans every morning at 5.30, you know. They enjoy that. Or, or maybe you're thinking, you know, every single time I'm online, I witness people taking joy in the demise of their enemies. Uh, so what makes this a, a Christian experience of joy? And for that, we need uh, number three. Number three is the key. The Christian's joy is the result of a person, namely Jesus. See, unless our joy is ultimately found in Christ... At best, the joy that we experience in life is going to be shallow, and at worst, I actually think it can lead to more brokenness in our lives, right? If the, if the joy that I find in created things, in, in gifts that God has given us, in relationships, isn't a reflection of the joy that I find in the creator, uh, but instead, I'm actually looking to those things, a person or, or uh, the, the, the money that I have or my possessions for my ultimate joy. If I'm looking to the things around me for that, I'm going to crush those things under the weight of that expectation. Right, we've all seen this. We've seen parents who place their ultimate you know, expectation for joy in their kids. That's where they look for their joy. And at the first sign of a failure, from their kids or, or their, their kids is taking a direction in life that they wouldn't have taken, their joy just evaporates. It's gone. Likewise, if my joy isn't in the finished work of Christ, I'm going to misunderstand who the enemy even is. I'm going to look at my neighbor who sort of parks on, on my half of the driveway a little bit too much. They're the enemy. Or, you know, my supervisor who's withholding this promotion from me. They're the enemy. Instead of understanding who the enemy actually is, Satan, sin, and death. But when my ultimate joy is found in Christ, then the people around me are no longer enemies. They're, they're fellow created beings. And the only enemies left, Satan, sin, and death, we recognize have been conclusively defeated by Jesus. Right? And we can take great joy in that, at the defeat of those enemies. Jesus Christ has to be our, the ultimate hope, the ultimate source of our joy. Otherwise, all the other joy that we experience is going to be shallow or lead to more brokenness in our lives. Peter, I think, was getting at this in one of the letters that he wrote to a church or to a group of churches. 1 Peter 1, verse 8. He's saying to them, Though you haven't seen him, you love him. He's talking about Jesus. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's an, that's an ultimate, that's a, uh, a, a, a well of joy, right? That's not going to run dry. A joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And if our, our joy is secured there with Jesus and the work that he's done for us, then I think we can take great joy in the things around us that God has given us and in this recognition that our enemies have been defeated. We can exult in that. So if those are some reasons for our joy as believers, how do we cultivate it? How do we experience more and more joy? Because if we actually look at the life of Jesus and think about what scripture says about him, it's not a purely joyful picture, is it? If you spent some time in the Gospels, you probably know that to be the case. Isaiah, in this prophecy about the Messiah that would come, about Jesus, Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men, 
a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Not exactly a joyful picture. I think we can agree. <laughs> Jesus' own words in his, one of his greatest sermons, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 4, he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And so if Jesus is our ultimate example, and this was his experience, uh, and this is what he taught, how do we square that with what I've just said, you know, that we have reasons to be joyful? How do we cultivate joy in the midst of that picture? You know, Jesus being a man of sorrows and, and saying, blessed are those who mourn. I think we need to do a few things. First is, we need to recognize as followers of Jesus that on this side of eternity, we will never experience pure joy. There will always be a tension. And it's a tension that Jesus knew very well. The writer of Hebrews was getting at this when he said this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that while Jesus actually underwent the greatest injustice the world has ever known, there was a thread of joy woven through the tapestry of his suffering. Because he saw what his suffering was earning for himself and for us and it brought him joy in the midst of that pain and brokenness. And, and suffering. And the writers in the New Testament pick up on this over and over. Paul in particular, he experienced this in very acute ways. This joy running in the midst of, of suffering and pain and brokenness. And he would, encourage, he would try and encourage churches as they were experiencing this. One example, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 4 to 7. Paul talking about some of his own experience. He says, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. So if you're like, where's the tension? That sounds great. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. There's the tension. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. That's honest, isn't it? That's honest. From the moment we were in Macedonia, there was, it was fighting without and there was fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Paul gets at that tension, doesn't he? The tension that we will always experience on this side of eternity. Until Christ returns again, we as followers of Jesus should be marked by joy, but we will also experience suffering and brokenness. Sadly, I think there are many believers, many Christians who try to live a life insulated from pain and discomfort. But what I don't think these people realize is that they're also cutting themselves off from the depth of joy that they could be experiencing. 
Any of you who have really pressed into life in a missional community can probably attest to this, that the more we try and live as family, treating each other as brothers and sisters, loving each other that way, the more hurt and disappointment we're going to feel, right? That, that, that's reality, and I know, I know because of my role at Church of the City that many of you have experienced that, but also, and simultaneously, the more we press in, we experience this depth of joy as we become a family. We disappoint each other and we fall in love with each other as a family. And it's both of those things at the same time. So if we're gonna cultivate joy in our lives as followers of Jesus, we need to recognize that until Christ returns, we can experience joy, but at the same time, we're gonna experience suffering. And Jesus knew that experience well, so we're in good company. Secondly, we need to recognize, if we're going to cultivate joy in our lives, we need to recognize that joy is a feeling and a choice and a fruit of the Spirit. We need to recognize that joy is a feeling, a choice, and a fruit of the Spirit. People tend to want, and this includes theologians, people tend to want to pick one of these and highlight it at the expense of the others. Either joy is, joy is a choice, you choose it. And ironically, those are usually the people that aren't very joyful uh, that, that tend to uh, emphasize that. You've got to choose joy. It's like, well, why don't you ever smile? Uh, or, you know, people want to really focus on the fruit of the spirit aspect. Or, you know, some people just say, well, if you're not feeling joyful, like, it's, it's a feeling. You know, you can't, what am I supposed to do about it? Hallelujah. <laughs> maybe, rough Christmas, rough holiday time for Rolly, maybe. Uh, but I think it's all of these things. I think it's all of these things. Certainly, we have experienced moments where we've experienced that feeling of joy, moments where joy has come unexpectedly to us through a reunion with a friend or a thoughtful gift or perhaps just a a dramatic, not just, a dramatic conversion experience. I've had a number of conversations with people connected to our church in the last number of months where they knew sort of about God. They had this sort of vague understanding of the gospel and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came and turned the lights on and what was dead came to life and in that moment was joy, unexpected joy, a feeling of joy. Joy is definitely a feeling but it is also a choice. There are days when we must consciously choose joy because joy isn't going to wander along and choose us. Joy is a discipline in the life of a believer. I don't know how else to understand Philippians 4.4, where Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, again, I will say, rejoice. Henry Nouwen said it this way, and I just stumbled across this quote this morning, so it won't be on the screen, but he said, uh, Joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. And I had a couple of days like this this week, friends, Days that were, I was feeling anxious and just, I, it's usually those weeks, Matt might be able to attest to this, where you're preaching on a topic and then the Spirit says, you know, well, how are you doing in this area in your life? Uh, days where I just stopped and I said, I have no joy today. And it's affecting Sam, my wife, it's affecting my boys. And I just had to say, I, I want to choose joy in this moment because it's not going to come along and, and choose me, I don't think. But also... Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Because I think there are moments, maybe even seasons in our life, where the choice to be joyful is just beyond us. Moments uh, or seasons of loss or 
tragedy, grief, um, and it's the Spirit that's going to work joy in our lives. Again, writers in the New Testament were going after this theme. One example, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6. Paul says, and you became imitators of us. He's talking to another church. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That tension. See, the Spirit was supplying joy to the Thessalonians in the midst of painful experiences. Just a tiny bit of context. Paul was ministering there in Thessalonica and then he got chased out of town. Legal action began to be brought against the believers there in that city and mobs were stirred up against them. And yet, somehow, in the midst of all that, the Holy Spirit is coming along and watering and joy is growing. Because joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Sometimes it's a feeling, oftentimes it's a choice, and always it's a fruit of the Spirit. Finally, and I think most importantly, how do we cultivate joy in our lives is to cast your mind and your heart on Jesus. If you've read much of the Gospels, maybe uh, you've read uh, the passage in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks about abiding in him. He invites his, his disciples to abide in him. And at the end of that passage, he says this. This is I, what I think is pretty remarkable. John 15, verse 11. He says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Can you think about that for a minute? Jesus is not just saying, Hey, you know, if you do these things, if you abide in me, you'll, you'll eventually become more joyful. He's saying, you'll, you'll get my joy. Joy that was strong enough, potent enough to withstand the evil and the suffering of the cross. Jesus says we can have his joy. We can have that joy. But I think to experience that, we need to spend time with our Savior, with Jesus. And so, friends, as we look at the world, even at Christmas time, as we look around, I think it's easy to see a place that, where there's more and more anxiety, more and more sort of fracturing and uh, alienation between people. And I think that the world has never needed more uh, people who are marked by the joy of Christ, people whose joy is full. Because, I don't know about you, but when you come into contact with those people, it's, it's sweet, it's rich, and you leave different. And I believe our world needs to experience that in us. So my prayer is that we can be those kinds of people marked by the joy of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I think you gave us... Uh, good reasons to be joyful. Not only did you create this world for us to live in, to enjoy, but you also uh, secured our joy through your death and resurrection. Defeating our enemies, sin and death, and uh, 
offering us a way to be found in you and to have your joy for ourselves, a joy that could withstand even the evil of the cross. So I pray that we would be people who are full of that joy, and as we go about all of the things that we do over this season in the coming weeks, being with family, spending time with neighbors, that as they come into contact with us, uh, we wouldn't be characterized by that anxiety or frenziedness that so often goes with the holidays, but that people, as they interact with us, would experience joy. That our joy would spill over onto them and be infectious and would draw people to Jesus. We can't do that in and of ourselves, um, but Holy Spirit, you can work that joy in us. So I pray that you would. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.